Well, good evening. We appreciate everybody being with us this evening. We are glad to kind of embark on this new series that we're going to be launching tonight. Uh, we haven't done a cheer series all year, and we, uh, I know from our perspective, we really like doing this. It uh, enables us to maybe bring out more things than we normally get to do in a typical sermon. And years ago, there was an old saying that the preacher has a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. And that idea was to bring out things that were current and relevant and on people's minds. And so with that in mind, we, we launched this new series this evening about Israel. There was a war going on. And unlike the war in Ukraine, <clears throat> it seems like the whole world has taken sides and been captivated by this. And there's a lot of concern about what this war is doing in the sense of where God is. Uh, a lot of folks see this war as having biblical ramifications and things such as that. And so, so we're going to kind of walk through this, looking at different aspects of this uh, as we kind of introduce these things. The level of hatred is, is escalating out of proportion. Uh, 40% of all hate crimes are pointed to the Jewish people. And we've seen across this country, across the world, just... Uh, loud protests and the, the wanting of death of one group of people or the death of another group of people. And so uh, all of this brings us back to the Bible and what some things God has to say. Now our president's calling for, or not calling for, but the people are pressuring him to have a ceasefire over there. And there's been a call to have a two-state uh, proposition where both exist at the same time, Israel and Palestine. Hamas wants to kill all Jews. Jews want to kill all Hamas. Now, in this series, we're not talking about politics. Politics do not belong in this building. And we're not going to get into who's right, who's wrong, and all this. Our interest is looking at this from a biblical standpoint. Back in the 1970s, when Jimmy Carter was president, he made the statement that I am for the Jews because God is for the Jews. Well, that's an interesting statement. And that is not necessarily a biblical statement. And so, so what we want to do is just kind of look at some things such as along this line. Uh, after World War II, 1945, when the war ended, British controlled that area. And they gave Israel their independence. So in 1948, Israel became an independent nation. And there's been hostility ever since that time period. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you drawing out that our concern is not to comment necessarily on the news, to uh, take one side or another. I, I know you and I both, and, and I would hope everyone in this room is just horrified, period, by the massive loss of life. Um, on October 7th, well over a thousand Israelis uh, were slaughtered. Um, the images, the the soundtrack, the uh, the stories that came out of that day are just not appropriate to talk about in a <clears throat> setting like this with little kids in in the audience. It was a a horrific day, but now of course the the nation of Israel is intent on annihilating the terrorist group that 
boldly claimed responsibility for that. They live in a hotly contested piece of land, and since October 7th, there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of innocent people who have lost their lives. And so, generally speaking, this is just a, a humanitarian tragedy, but our great concern over the course of the next four <clears throat> Sunday evenings is to think about this from a biblical point of view. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that Israel is right at the heartbeat of everything. And so tonight we want to try and talk about Israel's origin and a little bit of their history from the Old Testament. You can see where we're going to be on the front of this morning's bulletin. Lord willing, one week from tonight we'll go to the New Testament and listen in on how Jesus and especially the apostles talk about Israel, the people group especially, right? From there on November 19th, we will talk specifically about how Israel relates to the kingdom of Christ. And that is where a lot of the interest from our religiously minded neighbors is swirling and very excitedly so in recent weeks because if you have a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker who is in any way religious, my guess is the vast majority of them believe in something called premillennialism. Now, we're not going to tackle that tonight, but wrapped up in that theory that so many people believe is the future of Israel is tied to the kingdom of Christ. And we'll talk a little bit about how we need to be very careful with that. And then we'll wrap it up with, okay, what should we be feeling? What should we be thinking? How should we be praying? What should we be doing? What should we be hoping for Israel today? But I, let me just give you a, a basic overview of what we're talking about, the part of the world that we are talking about. As you mentioned, in 1948, the United States, the United Nations, recognized Israel as a sovereign nation after the atrocities of the Holocaust. And ever since then, this has been probably the most hotly contested piece of real estate in the world. For a little bit of reference, the modern nation of Israel is roughly the size of our state of New Jersey. So we're talking about a very small piece of land surrounded by nations that are predominantly Muslim, religiously and culturally. <clears throat> what we have been hearing so much about here in recent weeks is this little stretch of Gaza. That is where these attacks launched from. That is an area, again, highly populated by uh, a Muslim population. Obviously, Israelis are coming from a different point of view. Every once in a while in the news, you hear about this West Bank area. That also is under predominantly Muslim control. North of that, west of that, south of that is the modern-day nation of Israel. You might have heard on the news in recent weeks that one of the propaganda phrases that 
Gazans, especially uh, some of these terrorist organizations, Hezbollah, Hamas, that they broadcast all around the world is from the river to the sea. Anybody ever heard that before? <clears throat> you, you hear that every once in a while as a kind of chant. What they are saying is, here is the Jordan River, right here, north to, to south. Over here is the Mediterranean Sea, and what they are saying is, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, we want no Jews. If there's a Jew between Jordan and the Mediterranean, we are intent on their destruction. And so this is probably the most complicated socioeconomic mix on the planet. It is. And, you know, college campuses across the world have had outbreaks and people taking one side and the other. So what we want to do this evening is we want to begin by just talking about some of the early words in our Bible. And so let's take our Bibles and let's turn over to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. And there are four words I want to share with you tonight. All of them have to do with this people. Now, when we, in a modern time, hear the word Israel, we think of a place. It's like saying Texas. I think of a place, okay? But Israel, as it's first used in the Bible, uh, had many different meanings. And so we're going to walk through four words tonight. We're going to talk about the word Israel. We're going to talk about the word Jew. We're going to talk about the word Hebrew and the word circumcision, because that's also used to refer to the people. So when we begin with the word Israel, it's already up there, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Um, it begins with a person. Over here in the book of Genesis, chapter 32, and in verse 28, this is the occasion when Jacob, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God. And in verse 28 of Genesis 32, the Lord says, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So the first time this word is used, it's used of a person. Jacob is Israel. God changed his name. Now, you might notice at the very back there the E-L of that. Jason, what does E-L stand for? Yeah, it, that is a generic term for God. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be describing the God of the Bible. In, in ancient languages, L was God. We know that God in Exodus reveals his name Yahweh to Moses and to the descendants of Abraham from that point forward, but El is just a generic name for God. And so you've brought out Israel means he wrestles with God. There are other names in the Bible, right? Like, that, like Samuel, S-A-M-U-E-L. Samuel means heard of God. Daniel. You know, it ends with E-L. God is my judge, is what Daniel means. You're just really good here. Well, I, oh. I took some notes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me throw one on you here. No, no, no. Ezekiel. God is my strength. Okay, see the E-L at the end of those words? And then Joel. Yahweh is God. God, okay. So, so when the word is, now when, again, when we think of Israel, modern terms, when, when you hear it on the newscast, a war in Israel, they're thinking about a location, okay? Originally, it was used to talk about a person, Jacob. Now, in time, it changes. It becomes a people. 
So let's, let's look at a couple of places. Let's turn our Bible to the book of Exodus now. Exodus chapter 4. We'll have a couple of references here. And this is where the idea of a nation of Israel, before they, before they had property, they were a group of people. So in Exodus chapter 4 and in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, he's not talking about Jacob. Jacob is long dead by here. So he's talking about the people that Moses would lead out of Egypt. My people is Israel. So Israel, that word now changes to become a group of people there. And we, and we see it that way. Uh, over the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 41, just another example of this. And this is used multiple, multiple times in our Bible. But Psalms 41 and verse 13, Psalms 41, 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He's not talking about some dirt. He's talking about people. So it changes to become a people. Now, the word now changes again. And it becomes now a place. And that's kind of how we know it. A location, a geographical location or territory. So when we have Israel, the nation, becoming a nation and a property, King Saul was the first king. And Saul made Samaria his capital. After Saul came King David. David moved the capital from Samaria to Jerusalem. And if you remember in your Bible history, after David was King Solomon. When Solomon divided or died, the kingdom split. We had the ten tribes to the north, which we call Israel. Two tribes to the south, which we call Judah. Israel and Judah. And there's a passage in the book of 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 6, that says, All the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, those are the first two kings of Israel and Judah, that they constantly fought. The relationship wasn't good. So Israel in the north has 20 kings in time. Not one of them is faithful to God. They lead into idolatry and more idolatry and deeper and deeper and those kind of things. And God would send prophet after prophet, but they would not turn from their idolatry. So in the year 722, God raised up the Assyrians. And Israel was taken away into Assyrian captivity. The ten tribes were gone. And at that time, most of them intermarried. From that came the word Samaritans. That's where the Samaritans came from. They were Israel who intermarried with Assyrians and other nations, and they became Samaritans. Now, just to pause this there, to go jump ahead with me to the book of John now, John chapter 4, and we'll come back to this. But John chapter 4, remember Jesus is in Samaria, and he's talking to the woman at the well. And in John 4 and in verse 9, John 4 verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman asked him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now we fast forward. What became of the Samaritans? The Samaritans became the Palestinians. That's where they are today. They came from Samaritans, which came from Israel, who intermarried with the Assyrians. 
And most of the descendants of the Palestinians are now uh, Islam, and they have a strong, strong hatred for the Jewish people. Now, before we leave this word, okay, so after, after Israel was taken away in captivity, and they're gone, we get late in our Old Testament to the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. And now the word flips Israel is used to talk about what we would once call Judah. It's now talked about the faithful of God. And so in Malachi chapter 1 and in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Well, when this was written, where was, where was Israel? Israel, as we first talked about, no longer existed. They were taken away captivity and they were gone. Who he's talking about here is Judah. So through the history, the word has changed. Start as a person, then a group of people, then a nation, and then that nation goes away and it's now talked about the people of Judah. Okay? All right. So let's open our Bibles back to 2 Kings chapter 25. You, you just read for us from John chapter 4 where a Samaritan woman references the Jews. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And, and if I can just re-summarize, because what, what you said is really important to understand. The nation of Israel under David, Solomon, Jeroboam, those, those 20 kings after its division are carried away by the Assyrians, 722. And the Assyrians' tactic is to put foreigners in that vacated land, right? That they own the land, they don't want it to stay empty, and so they take foreigners and transplant them in what had been the nation of Israel's territory. There are some Israelites still there, there are some Israelites who come back, and as they intermarry, that is where the Samaritans come from, ancient roots of Palestinians. We heard that woman in John chapter 4, a Samaritan, say Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, unless you stop and really think about it or go looking for it, you might think, well, Jew has to be all over the Bible. I mean, that's probably all the way back in Genesis, right? The first time we run across Jew as a name is in 2 Kings chapter 25. And I want you to notice there, just in the context, what's going on. This is after, about 150 years after the fall of Israel, Judah hangs on for a little while in the south. They've got a few semi-faithful kings. And so they last until 586 BC. Babylon comes in, lays siege. That's King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. He carries them off, right? The, the last remnants of the royal line of David in Jerusalem are carried away. The temple is destroyed. Young men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are taken to Babylon. That's, that's where we are. 2 Kings 25 is a sad, sad, sad chapter of the Bible. First time we read the word Jew, 2 Kings 25, 25. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews. 
and the Chaldeans, Chaldean is another name for Babylonians, who were with him at Mizpah. Jews is used right there to describe the, the remnants of that old nation of Judah, right? It, it has roots all the way back to the fourth son of Israel, Jacob, right? right. Jacob had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. The reason Judah comes to be of prominence is because that's where the kings by and large come from. After Saul, who is of the tribe of Benjamin, David is of the tribe of Judah, and now kings come from Judah, right? And so the people who lived in that part of the world, a, a tiny, tiny part of the world there for a little while, come to be known as Jews. By the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah and people coming back, well, it's all over. I mean, you read Jew dozens and dozens and dozens of times to trace back their origin all the way back to this is where we came from. This is what we once enjoyed. This is who we are. Jews describes those people. So a third term that's used is the word Hebrew. Now, when we think of Hebrew, probably one of the first things that come to our mind is the book of Hebrews. And it was a book written to Jewish Christians. Hebrew is also a language that's used. But that word Hebrew is also used to refer to this group of people. Now, let's, let's, let's just chase about three verses here, if you will. Go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. It's used of Abraham back here. Now, we remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. It's before they were to enter the promised land. And so he's writing after the fact and just kind of identifying some things. But in Genesis 14 and in verse 13, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. Now, you might say, well, well that, how can he be a Hebrew when it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob was the first one to have his name changed. Moses is writing this after the fact. And it's when the people know that Abraham is our father. Abraham is one of us. Abraham was a Hebrew. Now, in our New Testament, let's look at a couple examples. Look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. And this is in the early days of the church. And a little problem arose. And we find our word here. Acts chapter 6 and in verse 1. Acts 6 verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Okay? There are word, there's our word Jew. There's our word Hebrew. What was Hellenistic? What did that mean? Hellenistic was the Jews that did not live in Jerusalem area. They lived out. And by and large, most of them did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek. And so they had been what we call Hellenized. And so they were Jewish, but they were not the native Hebrews. Okay. Now, one other place I want you to look at. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And here in verse 5, as the Apostle Paul is describing himself, Philippians 3, verse 5, 
He was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does he mean? Well, what you mean is that of the Jews, I was a Jew. I was, I, I was a superior Jew in the sense of how I was excelling in that religion. And so, so yet that is just another term we find throughout our Bibles to describe this group of people. Israel or Jew or Hebrew. All right. One more word here. Israel, Jew, Hebrew, and circumcision. Okay. And we bring that up not just because of that surgical procedure, but because, as we'll see in just a moment, in the New Testament, many of these same people are described as the circumcision. So what, what is that all about? It goes all the way back to Genesis 17. If you want to turn back there, we go back to the life of Abraham. Genesis 12 is where God calls Abram to leave everything that he's known. We'll, we'll go back to Genesis 12 in just a moment. In Genesis 17, God institutes a sign of his covenant relationship with Abraham. And in Genesis 17, verse 11, you see that circumcision shall be a sign of the covenant, God says, between me and you. And from that time on, all the way into the New Testament. We can read about it in the life of Jesus. We just heard Paul reference it as a Jewish male. A Jewish male was to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Eight days old. If you were a Jewish male, according to this precedent set in Genesis 17 and then ratified into law, if you will, under the law of Moses... If you were a Jewish male on the eighth day, sacrifices were to be offered and you were to be circumcised. Why? That was a sign, a physical sign of your covenant between you and God. Now, the reason that we bring that up is if you flash forward to the New Testament, let's go to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we are reading about Jews, not just ethnically right but religiously they are jews they observe the law of moses right and they're not sure about this jesus is the messiah talk right we read all about that in the gospels and in the early chapters of acts there are some who are willing to say okay we can accept that Jesus is the Messiah, but if you're going to be a Messiah follower along with us, you must be circumcised. Well, that's a big deal as the good news spreads far beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee into Gentile territory where people were not commonly circumcised, right? So do you have to not only believe in Jesus, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but must you also be circumcised? Now, the answer was no. But you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party 
criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate them. We read that phrase in Acts. We read it throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul. In Titus chapter 1, verse 11, he talks about people of the circumcision party who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They were compromising the gospel message. But in our New Testament, this also is describing some, not all, but some especially who were saying, okay, you Gentile, you can be a Christian, but you must also, and when this is used in the New Testament, generally it's not a compliment. Right, right, very much so. Yeah. And so, again, one, one of the things we want to do in this series is to help you understand, because sometimes what we hear in our culture is different than what we hear in our Bible. So when somebody says, I am a Jew, well, that could be their ethnic. They're talking about what I am. I'm not black. I'm this or I'm that or their race. But ethnically, I'm a Jew. Other times, when somebody says, I'm a Jew, he's talking about his religion. Judaism. Judaism. And so, and so there's a lot of different phrases here. And, and it can get very confusing as, as you kind of talk about this. Now, Jason's going to take us in just a minute back to Abraham and the promises. One of the things we hear sometimes is especially when somebody, they would never do it now because there's a war, but they travel to Israel for a vacation. And they commonly say, I'm going to the Holy Lands. Okay? Is that Holy Land? Yeah, yeah. Let's go back real quick to the book of Psalms. Psalm 78. There are two times in our Old Testaments that Holy land is used. Once in Psalm 78, one in Zechariah 2. Let me just show you for the sake of time one of them in Psalm 78, verse 54. Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph. He is reciting a great deal of Israel's history as a nation. And we just jump in at verse 54. Speaking of God, Psalm 78, 54, he brought them to his holy land to the mountain which his right hand had won. Uh, that mountain is Mount Zion, where the, the, the capital city of Jerusalem eventually was built. And so in what way was this holy land? Well, it was land that was set aside by God for these people, right? It was set apart for these people to live in. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But to use that very common phrase today, and, and we will talk more about this as, as this series unfolds, I would suggest to you incredible things happened there, holy things happened there, but the geography, the land itself today, I would hesitate to refer to as holy land. And we'll talk more why as this series unfolds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back. We'll, we'll wrap up in Genesis chapter 12. If you take nothing else away from our foundational lesson this evening, if any of this has confused you, we would love to talk more with you. 
if we've lost you anywhere along the way, if we could just reel you back in and really encourage you to take away these, these basic points over the course of the next few minutes. If you want to understand the origin and history of Israel in our Old Testaments, this is the heartbeat of it all. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram and makes three promises to him, right? He repeats them in Genesis 15. He repeats them in Genesis 17. He repeats them to Abraham's son Isaac. He repeats them to Abraham's grandson Jacob. They are baked into the DNA of Jacob's 12 sons. The heartbeat of it all for the Jewish people goes back to Genesis chapter 12, right? Where God makes three promises to Abraham. Your family line is going to grow into a great nation. At this point, Abraham has zero children. That's a strange promise to make to a 75-year-old man married to a 65-year-old woman with no children. But you keep reading and you see how God fulfills the, the early parts of that promise, right? Number two, that nation is going to have a beautiful, a land flowing with milk and honey is the way it's described, right? That nation, I'm going to give them a let. Remember, our Old Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, reminds us Abraham did not own one piece of this land. He lived as a sojourner in tents in this land. He had to buy a small piece of land to bury his wife. And that came to be the only little foothold that he would enjoy in, in his own lifetime, right? But I'm going to make of you a nation. I'm going to give that nation a land in which to live. And somehow, some way, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your family line. Genesis 12 is where those foundational promises are made. Now, listen really carefully because this is a really big idea. Let's go to the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. And let me show you, Exodus chapter 19, did God fulfill promise number one? We are flash forwarding now from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19, hundreds and hundreds of years. Abram and Sarai are the fountainhead of it all. Eventually, their grandson Jacob will go down with about 70 people in the Egypt at the very end of Genesis. By the time they come out, they are probably two to three million people. And I want you to notice in Exodus 19 how God describes them. He's brought them to Mount Sinai and God says... In verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does he do from there? He gives them a law, transforming this big group of liberated slaves into an 
organized nation. Where do they go from Sinai? Well, they, in the lifetime of Moses, go to the very doorstep of the promised land, right? Joshua is the one who leads them across the Jordan River. You can read all about those conquests, but for the sake of time, go with me to Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21. Again, we're, we're flash-forwarding a number of decades now. Joshua 21, this is after marching around the walls of Jericho. This is after all of those military battles. North, south, east, west. The descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, have prevailed. And I want you to notice how our narrator summarizes. Joshua 21, verse 43. Thus, Yahweh, the Lord gave to Israel. We're talking about a nation of people now, right? He gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Don't you get the sense that our narrator is really trying to make a strong point there? God fulfilled all of his promises. Relating to giving this nation a land in which to live. Did he fulfill his third promise? Well, that's, that's in many ways what we're going to talk about Next Sunday evening, Galatians chapter 3 makes this point powerfully. You remember this is where Paul talks about the law. The law of Moses was our guardian or schoolmaster or tutor to lead us to Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that third promise. Jesus was a Jew. He was a descendant of Abraham. What I want you to see is God fulfilled all three of these promises. Which means what? Well, in, in one sense, mission accomplished, right? Especially important, if you'll go back with me very quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 28, is to remember that these promises... This covenant, Deuteronomy 28 is a great example, this covenant was conditional. I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you a land in which to live, but you must obey me. We are entering into a relationship based on mutual promises, right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, just as an example, in verse 64, Deuteronomy chapter 28, let, let's notice back up in 62. Whereas you, God speaking to Israel, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. First half of the chapter, he's saying, listen, if you obey me, if you keep the covenant, you're going to be blessed in immeasurable ways. But if you do not obey me, let me tell you what's going to happen. 
Verse 63, as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Do you hear that? If you don't obey me, if you don't keep this covenant, I will pluck you out of this land that I'm giving you. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. What I want you to see is God fulfilled his promises. As we talked to this morning, God is faithful. Israel was not always faithful. God fulfilled his promises. But to say in 2023, well, this part of the world belongs to this people group because of what God said in Genesis 12. God has fulfilled his promises. He told them what would happen if they did not obey. Even their exile did not stop promise number three, right? But I'll just lead off or end with, round off with, um, we'll get more into it next Sunday, in the New Testament, there is never a call, never a call for, well, we've got to take this land back. As the people of God, we must take this land back. You, you took us to John chapter 4, that Samaritan woman. We'll see you next Sunday. Jesus says, listen, you all worship on Mount Gerizim. Jews worship on Jerusalem. But I'm here to tell you an hour is coming and is now here when it's, I'm paraphrasing. It's not going to depend upon location. God is spirit. And those who worship him, Jew or Gentile, must worship him in, in spirit and in truth. So if, <clears throat> if Hamas destroys Israel, Israel loses their independence. They no longer is a nation of Israel. Okay? What does that do to the Bible? Nothing. 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 And so when we talk about the promised land, it was not promised for eternity. It was not promised for all time. And so, in fact, when we look at ancient Israel in the Bible <clears throat> and modern Israel today, there's a lot of things that are not common. I mean, uh, biblical Israel was under the law of Moses. Uh, modern Israel doesn't follow the law of Moses. Biblical Israel had a king. Uh, modern Israel has a president and a prime minister. Biblical Israel possessed the land that God promised. Modern Israel just has a little bit of that land, not very much of it. Biblical Israel had a temple. Modern Israel does not have a temple. Biblical Israel looked to the Messiah, Jesus. Modern Israel denies Jesus. And so, so when we think about Israel today, I mean, they've got to have that land so, the, so God can keep his promises. No, that's not true. That's not true. And that's what we want to see from the Old Testament. Now, we're going to stop it here. We've been a little bit long already. We apologize. But, but next week, we're going to carry on. We're going to notice how that word, Jew, Israel, is referred to in the New Testament. And it takes a little different place. And so let's turn our Bible. One final passage I want you to look at this evening. Turn with me to the book of Psalms, if you will. Psalms 47 and verse 8. And I want to read you something for our invitation tonight. But Psalms 47 and verse 8. It says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. 
And maybe some of you have seen this before, but there, there, there's a great uh, little thing I, I ran across recently. It says, don't feel sorry or fear for your kids or your grandchildren because the world they are growing up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for the exact moment in time that they're in. Their life wasn't a coincidence or an accident. Raise them up to know the power that they walk in as children of God. Train them up in the authority of His Word. Teach them to walk in knowing that God is in control. Empower them to know that they can change the world. Don't teach them to be fearful and disheartened by the state of the world, but be hopeful because they can do something. Each person in all of history has been placed in that time that they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew David could handle Goliath. He knew Daniel could handle the lions. He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew Peter could handle the prisons. He knew Paul could handle persecution. He knows your child or your grandchild can handle whatever challenge they face in life. He created them and they can do this. Don't be scared for your children, but be honored that God chose you to be a parent for the generation that's facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Rise up to the courage. Raise Daniels. Raise Davids. Raise Esthers. Raise Peters. Raise Paul. God isn't scratching his head wondering what he's going to do with this mess of the world. He has an army. He's raising up to drive back the darkness and make him known all over the world. Don't let your fears steal the greatness that God has placed in them. I know it's hard to imagine them as anything besides sweet little babies, but we just want to protect them from anything that could ever be hard on them. But they were born for such a time as this. Our God is upon the throne. This evening, as we offer the invitation, we need to see that our world has always faced trouble. Our world has always had wars. Our world has always been in turmoil. And the reason is, more than anything else, is the world is missing Jesus. We live in a times when people are run by hatred, by emotion, by different things, rather than Jesus Christ. And so this evening, if you're among us and you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. You need to know the difference he makes in your life. Just as we've talked about the promises to Abraham, God has promises to you. If you walk with him, follow him, and trust him, heaven can be yours. You need to be baptized as the Bible teaches. You need to walk with him. And hopefully as we go through this series, as you're hearing things on the news, you're hearing co-workers talk about this, a lot of people are really concerned about what's going on in Israel. We'll understand biblically what God wants us to know. If we can help you, won't you come as we stand and sing?